You're listening to the relaunch of the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Sean Devine. This is episode number 141, a conversation with Dave Paola from Block. The relaunch of the show is supported by workonrails.com. If you have a job to promote, you can do so for free right now using the code RELAUNCH while supplies last. Some of the great companies that are already promoting jobs on workonrails.com include GingerCube, Viewbook.com, Harvest, and Resource Guru. Whether you are hiring or looking to be hired, check out workonrails.com. All right, Dave. Well, thanks for joining me today on the Ruby on Rails podcast. Why don't you start off by introducing yourself and what you're currently up to? Sure. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, my name is Dave Paola. I'm the co-founder and CTO at a company called Block, uh, Block.io. We're, a, uh, we're an online apprenticeship company. We, tr- we help people train and learn new technical skills. Okay, great. I'm, I'm super interested in that topic. I'm going to ask you lots of questions about that. Um, in, in a few minutes when we get there. But for now, let's sort of go into your personal history a bit more. So how'd you get to Block? Uh, so I graduated, uh, I have a degree in computer science from Illinois. So I'm from the uh, from Midwest, I actually grew up in Ohio. And I knew I wanted to do a startup my entire life, or at least post high school and, and beyond. Um, and so uh, I was interested in computers from a very early age. I started programming in probably fifth grade or sixth grade. Um, and after after I graduated, I actually knew I didn't want to get a job, so I I, I drove across the country with a friend of mine um, during the summer, and he kind of dropped me off in San Francisco after a wonderful road trip, and then I, I kind of couch surfed and lived nomadically for oh, three or four months, um, working on various websites, uh, and uh, eventually I was uh, building some websites on Google App Engine, actually, uh, because I started out as a Python guy. And I was pretty unhappy with App Engine at the time, and so I knew that Heroku was around, um, but they didn't support Python yet, and so I saw that as an opportunity to build something called Jangi. Um, I don't know if any of the listeners will be familiar with Jangi. Probably not, but um, did that for a little while. Realized it wasn't the business for me and my co-founder, and uh, took a job at a company called Contagent, where I, I helped work on some analytics products um, for social games, actually. I was there for about a year. Well, I've got to ask you as we as we get um, sort of further towards where you are at Block. Take me back to Chicago a bit. So I live in Chicago, Chicago right now. And cool. Where'd you go to school around here? Yeah, I wasn't in Chicago. Actually, it was in Champaign Urbana, um, the University of Illinois down in Urbana Champaign. I love that place. It's uh, <laughs> I was involved in a, an organization there called ACM, which is uh, a little bit uh, prestigious is probably the wrong word, but it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of well known in in the technology space for being the, the biggest ACM chapter. So my, uh, my stepdaughter, 17, she's a senior in high school, and Illinois is one of the seven schools she, she applied to. Uh, give her the pitch about why she should go there. <laughs> oh, yeah, Alina. I mean, uh, I don't know if she's interested in, but, uh, you know, one thing I had the, the privilege of participating in was a, a conference there actually called Reflections Projections. It's a student-run conference, so there's no faculty really involved. And the best thing about Illinois is that there are very successful people who have come out of Illinois, and... Uh, they're they're mostly down to earth people, and you really get the opportunity to to see that they're just normal people who really work their butts off. Um, so it makes success very accessible, I think. So no regrets. You think it's a good a good oh, pick, no. good pick for a current high school senior. It's a, an incredible school. All right, cool. I'm going to pass that along to her. So <laughs> I interrupted you. Why don't you take us from where you were, you know, forward? Sure. So uh, like I said, I, I was I was at a that was actually I was pretty much finished. That, that I was at um, this company called Contagion where I. 
I helped them sort of build out a dashboard and, and maintained a little bit and changed a bit of their infrastructure when it comes to how the, that was all architected. And I was there for about a year and uh, decided to move on. And uh, I'm co-founder now, and I got together after that. And we knew that we knew that education and higher education there was sort of something amiss, and we we started building a few different products and ended up doing what we're doing now, which is sort of well, what we call online apprenticeships. Um, so that's that's where we know that was about that was the beginning of 2012, so two years ago. Cool. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that. So let's let's before we talk about how to teach other people how to program, let's sort of rewind into your past. Your it sounded like you started programming even before college or at the college at the very least. So tell us more about that. How did you end up programming? Um, what sparked your interest? What did you get into first, etc.? Sure. You know, I. I, I couldn't tell you the reason I got into it. I'm definitely, I'm definitely a programmer because I enjoy it. It's definitely a passion of mine. I didn't get into it because I wanted a job and anything of that nature. Um, and so I remember, I think probably my first foray into programming was <laughs> DOS batch files on my parents' machine, which was very early, probably fifth grade or so. And I remember I had a, a good friend of mine. There was a game called Chips Challenge. I don't know if anybody will remember that, but on on Windows. And I wanted to write a little program to put Chips Challenge onto a floppy disk so that I could have other, uh, my other f- friends at school in fifth or sixth grade, uh, they could install it on their computers. And at the time, it was just an executable. You'd have to copy. And if you didn't know how to run uh, the copy command, then uh, you couldn't install it. So I wrote a little batch file and copied it. That was, I guess, fifth or sixth grade. And so after that, I got into QBasic. Um, and then uh, I was actually lucky enough to have some programming classes in high school as well, but they were, they were mostly they were mostly a little earlier than my skill level at the time. So I, I progressed from QBasic to Visual Basic, which is probably rather common um, and then of course during college I was again I, I went to a great school and so I was exposed to all sorts of technology and really up my chops I guess <laughs> all right so let's let's set like the, uh, the the timeline so other people know when all this was happening so it, sure you're, it sounds like you're pretty young from the intro but like when did you so when was fifth grade for you what year Sure. So I'm 27 now. I was born in 1986. So uh, I I don't I'm pretty terrible with ages. I'm not sure how old you are when you're in sixth grade, but that was that was probably 96 or so. Maybe 11 in sixth grade, give or take. Okay. Yeah. So 97, maybe. Yeah. Wow. So can you remember a time before the internet? Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember I I used to play uh, Doom. Okay. (laughs) With a little joystick on my parents' computer when it came out. It's sort of an interesting thing. So you and I aren't all that far apart age-wise. I'm 10 years older than you. Okay. Um, but uh, the Internet came to be when I was just about at the end of high school. So, you know, I, I graduated right. in 1996. Um, so <laughs> right at the end. I mean, so at the end that that um, it wasn't a thing, really, in high school. I mean, I, I, I personally was... Um, a little bit into it, but it wasn't sort of popular until maybe my second year of college. Certainly. And so it ends up making you know that that ten years feel like a lot longer than it really is. <laughs> yeah, definitely, it is. It is interesting too because I was so interested in in computers. That's how it was probably perceived from the outside and my friends in middle school and high school. Right? It was. I, I'm not going to actually say nerdy. I don't think I had that reputation, but it was. Um, I definitely felt like I was in the cutting edge in, in my friend group, I guess. <laughs> now, if you weren't known as a nerd, like, were you a nerd? I wonder if there's a difference between those two things. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how I categorized myself in high school. I, I had a band, so I don't think I was too nerdy, but uh, I was lucky, I guess. Oh, that's cool. What instrument do you play? Uh, guitar. I, I played guitar. I, uh, I bought my first amp in, I guess, eighth grade. Fender, Fender Twin. Do you, uh, do you still play? Uh, not as much as I'd like. Uh, 
I, I, do, I, I did get the opportunity to play for the first time with, with my old band, uh, I think, in New Year's last year, and it was, it was amazing. I, I, actually, I actually think the experience of playing in a band with other people, we, we played all the time in high school, like uh, many times per week, and so there's sort of that, that flow that you get into with, with other people, especially with something like music where you can, you know, maybe the, the, the bassist or the, the other guitarist or something, maybe it's, someone makes a mistake, but if, if you're so well attuned to each other, then you don't even notice, and you can continue without without it sounding bad, basically. And so communicating in that way, I think, is actually incredibly helpful for uh, any communication skills you might need in, like, a business career. Huh. This, the technology dividing line is interesting with being, in a, or being a musician, too. So my brother's a little bit younger than me, and, uh, but just a, a couple years younger than me. And he's a, he's a professional musician, but he, he um, didn't grow up with, like, garage band or an equivalent. He grew up with... Oh, yeah. With, um, yeah. you know... <laughs> more analog approaches or digital but not not like the mix it yourself kind of digital and only in the last few years i think like two years did he start getting into garage band and it's it's totally changed everything and he, he sort of can't believe the difference between what people are used to now and what he was used to before and and here he's only i don't know 34 or something yeah absolutely i had a uh, <laughs> one of my most favorite christmas gifts ever was a, a 16 channel multi-track analog yeah. I think that was his favorite ever still. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so tell us a bit more about what you do now. And I don't mean what Block does, because we'll get into that a lot, but like, what do you personally do week to week, day to day? Sure. So I'm, uh, my official title is CTO, although that, that doesn't mean nearly as much in a company as small as ours. We're 14 people. Um, but I don't program anymore. That was, uh, that was a, a, like a quasi-recent change, I guess, that, that I made. But, so I'm, I'm basically in charge of all engineering. Uh, so we have uh, four engineers. And so day-to-day, what, what I do is I do code reviews. Um, I, and decisions that need to be made around like technical direction, like which, not stack exactly which stack to use, because we're Ruby on Rails stack. Um, but um, you know, architecture decisions, anything of that nature, and I also do uh, one-on-ones with, with, um, with our engineers and with a few other people. So, and I am also one of the co-founders, so I do remain heavily involved in all the high-level strategic stuff as well. So. Right. So, so tell me more about what it's like to transition to either not programming at all or programming not all that much. Has it been, has it been like, what's been good about it? What's been bad about it? Um, you know, I think, uh, I think I'm very lucky that I at least in my life it's been very rare to to meet people who are both um both both very technical and interested in programming and have some degree of skill and also um able to communicate well and so i'm really actually really happy i i, I still code in my spare time i have side projects but i don't go to work anymore and so uh i i love it i absolutely love what i do right now um What's the ideal number of hours per week that you'd program right now? I mean, like, sum up your non-work hours of programming, too. Sure. Oh, it's probably, for me, it's probably eight hours a week. It's, it's or even less, maybe. It's, it's not a lot. It's mostly on little side, side projects I like. And because of the nature of my company, I'm also able to work with some of our alumni in a similar capacity. So. Oh, yeah. That, that's going to be cool to talk about. I'm looking forward to that. Um, all right, so why don't we... This is going to be an interesting section where we talk about your sort of programming preferences, sure. given that you're programming less now than, than maybe you have for the last, I don't know, since you can remember. Uh, yeah. Actually, that's, that's a good question. So if you program eight hours a week now, how old would you have to go back to? Like, what, what age would you have to go back to where you programmed that little per week? <laughs> that's an excellent question. Um, wow. Wow. Oh. It would be many, many years. Uh, there was a period of time actually in college for about a year. Uh, 
a little about half a year, I guess. And I didn't do much programming. I did some, I guess you might call it soul searching. I uh, did other things and explored uh, other topics, but it was <laughs> that was probably that was probably uh, twenty two something like that. But before that, certainly fourth grade, fifth grade. Oh wow, wow. I mean, so have you thought about that? How how now is much different than any other point in your life? You know, in in one of the areas that I don't know, probably is one of the most influential drivers and in sort of what you're about, at least uh, professionally, I guess. Absolutely, I've thought about it. <laughs> I, you know. The past two years, this is probably just due to the nature of startups, but the past two years have been uh, certainly the most educational, the most trying, the most stressful, the most uh, uh, lots of ups, lots of downs on in terms of um, the skill development and all that. Um, but yeah, it's it's great. My head is still full of code, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> what portion of the the block code base do you think that you've committed? Any idea? Uh, like a percentage? Yeah, sure. Probably, probably a little less than half. All right. Although it's it's tough to tell now because there's lots of lots of work being done by other people and things get overwritten and not sure. Yeah, that's always fun, isn't it? When like if you let's say you wrote uh, the majority or, or even half of the code, then then like just about every commit that someone else makes is going to be like unless they're adding totally new features is going to be like changing something you did that they don't like. <laughs> I think that's funny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it, that reminds me of uh, it, when I was working in Contagion, uh, I successfully and rather naively, loudly tried to get the organization to move from Subversion to Git when I arrived, uh, which I could talk about at length. <laughs> but part of the result of that is my name is on uh, the initial Git commit. Um, and so I've gone back since uh, just to visit, you know, visit old colleagues and <laughs> some of the newer folks there who don't know me, they think that a lot of the bad code was committed by me and they blame me for it even though I, I, didn't, I didn't write it. My, just, my name's just on the initial commit. So. Well, that's funny. So in that case, you, you are uh, held responsible even though you weren't. But at Block, you kind of like are responsible. Do you yeah, that's the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they don't blame you because they, you know, they, they, you're the boss or whatever, but they want to. <laughs> I didn't even get the fun of writing the bad code. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Oh. All right, so let's go through a bunch of like trite programming preferences, and the the goal is to get a get a taste for sort of what you're like to program with, since sure. no one listening knows you. Okay, <laughs> a lot of these questions I wouldn't ask individually, but you know, and if you don't want to answer one, we'll just pass. But okay, we'll start with everyone's favorite beginning, which is uh, RSpec mini test something else. How do you test your your code? Uh, we use RSpec, um, and I, I I don't know that I have a good a good a good opinion or good answer for why. It's mostly that we find it very easy to use, very easy to get started, and because of its uh, the nature of how easy it is to read as well. Uh, that's that's pretty important. Uh, we test driven development to us is it is very important. But um, I do take I think it was Rich Hickey that had a good analogy he used about um, how how tests are sort of having guardrails on the highway and. Your code, your, your code base is the car, and what you don't want to do is write code that bangs into the guardrails. You want to write code that, uh, you know, sort of drives in the lanes as it should. So um, we do do test-driven development, and our choice of our spec is one that we we made because I think it was probably the default. Yeah, yeah, I think that's like word for word how I feel about it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, ERB, Hamel, something else. Uh, Hamel, yeah. I mean, um, I guess a lot of my opinions about templating are informed by uh, by my experience in Python actually so Django's templating engine uh, is pretty disciplined and pretty ruthless about not having logic and not containing logic in the templates which I think is a very good practice um, 
um, Hamill, Hamill and ERB, I guess, sort of drift away from that a little bit, but it's still, um, I think it's, I think it's well, um, well intentioned, and I, th I think Hamill is very, very short, uh, concise. It's I like Hamill better than HTML. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, me too. Or we're two for two in agreement. <laughs> so all right. Uh, in terms of uh, so the templating makes me think of framework. So Bootstrap, Foundation, Bourbon, Neat Bitters. You know, none of the above. How do you feel about you know, CSS, HTML frameworks? Um, you know. I, I still write all my stuff by hand uh, when I do, and I know we 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 used Bootstrap for a while, and we now have our own kind of uh, we call it Blockstrap, which is probably not as original as I'd hope. But um, yeah, well, you're, you're a musician, a programmer, all around cool guy, and it's hard to name stuff too. Awesome. That's the hardest thing is naming things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. No question. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. So we, you know, when it comes. To so like CSS and HTML frameworks, again, I, I don't know that I have a strong opinion. I, I tend to be very minimalist myself, personally. Um, I like to do a lot of things by hand, and uh, mostly just because... I'm, I'm actually not sure why I like it that way. I just I just like it. It's. I've, found, I've had some bad experiences in the past where I rely too much on libraries or frameworks that, that uh, maybe, maybe I didn't understand when I was getting into them, or many reasons I thought maybe they felt too magical uh, for my tastes. Um, and so I, I tend to start very bare bones. My first First step, a lot of times in a new Rails project, is to clean the slate on the gem file and, and uh, keep only a few of the defaults. So yeah, I get that. Have you uh, have you seen Bourbon, Neat, and Bitters from Thoughtbot yet? While we're on this topic, I haven't. Had, actually, uh, I, I like Thoughtbot a lot. I respect I respect them. I'm surprised I haven't heard about this. Yeah, so I I had that exact same reaction last week when a colleague said uh, he was going to use Bourbon and, and Neat on a project. So check it out. It's like. It, it, based on what you said, I think you may like it. It's sort of like um, the the benefits of Bootstrap or Foundation, but the HTML is semantic and is a lot like less opinionated, lightweight. Not doesn't really have a look to it. Cool. It, yeah, it's it's. I think it's like I don't know. It seems to strike a balance. And like yeah. you said, the Thoughtbot guys are pretty good. So yeah, totally agree. Uh, okay, uh, database. Uh, you said Heroku before, so I, uh, are you Postgres or have you moved off of, of that? And do you use my MySQL or something else now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've used I've used MySQL in the past, mostly in college, um, and but mostly because we use Heroku, we use Postgres. Uh, you, you know, a, a large amount of my experience with with App Engine and the reason I did. It, like App Engine was because of its data store, and I, I understand possibly it's improved by now, but um, that was my really first exposure into key value stores as a as a large scale database uh, rather than just as a cache or as a uh, hash table of some kind and um, I didn't I didn't realize what it was when I started using it uh, and so I, I sort of expected it to behave like a relational database and it <laughs> definitely didn't do that um, right any so, so you use the Heroku Postgres then right? yes and locally as well that's one of the first things I do again when I start a Rails project is get away from SQLite yeah, me too. So, how do you uh, how do you feel about Heroku Postgres? Has it worked out pretty well? Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a DBA. <laughs> um, I I like that I can just use it as a service. It's I I, I put my database in there, and and uh, if it ever goes down, it's not really on me. <laughs> That's part of what we pay for. Um, and I, I actually really like their data clips. Mm -hmm. uh, we've especially a block. We've been we've had a lot of success with actually exporting data clips into spreadsheets for the non-technical folks at Block. Hmm. And that's been great. All right, give me, the, give me like the, 
So I introduce you to bourbon neat and bitters. I've never used Data Clips, so give me the give me the like uh, thirty second pitch on them. Sure, Data Clips is awesome. It's a um, it's kind of like a permalink for a query into your database. Um, so you can you can save a query and it can it'll run periodically and you can send a URL to anybody and they can view the output in the browser. But then uh, you can also use it as a URL. So if you append a uh, I'm sorry, not a URL, an API. Uh, so if, if you append a file format to the end, it can be transformed into JSON or CSV or XML or I uh, not don't really remember what formats they support, but that's the general gist of it. It's mm -hmm. it's very simple and very useful. That sounds great. All right, so so sort of related to data stores, but slightly different. So what about um, uh, async work processes or message queues like Sidekick, Rescue, Delay Job? Um, do you use one? Uh, if so, which one? Any any thoughts about them? You know, I don't have a lot of experience with message queues. I've certainly used background workers. Um, I have a side project that uses delayed jobs. I used it on Heroku when it first came out. Um, we use Rescue. Um, the only work I I, don't, I guess I don't really have a strongly formed opinion about them. I tried to set up RabbitMQ one time uh, at an older company, and uh, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I just read about that project Sneakers the other day, which is sort of like uh, like Sidekick but backed by RabbitMQ. And, and got it. And I, I kind of had the same feeling, like I kind of know what I'm getting into on the other ones, and RabbitMQ seems like a different deal, but so I didn't try. Yeah, and last time I tried, I you know with Heroku add-ons now, I assume there's some kind of, um, I guess, very easily pluggable RabbitMQ I can do, so I don't have to install on my own Lido machines or anything like that. So yeah, there are a couple of them I think, but I haven't I haven't tried one. Yeah. All right, let's talk let's talk JavaScript for a second. So, uh, uh, general. Opinions about JavaScript? Did CoffeeScript make a difference in any way about how you feel about JavaScript? How much do you write? You know, etc. Sure, I, I like JavaScript. I have um, I have a good friend who worked on WebOS at Palm, and uh, and he has certainly influenced a lot of my opinions of JavaScript. I I don't use CoffeeScript enough to like it or dislike it. When I see it, I you know I. When I see it, I, the first thing I do in my head is convert it into JavaScript. Um, so that's definitely where I'm coming from. <laughs> um, I forget the other part of the question you asked me. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, no, that was the main one. So I, I actually came the other way. So I didn't start writing any JavaScript until CoffeeScript exists. So now I do the reverse. Anytime I have a library I use from someone else, I'm always converting it into CoffeeScript, which seems terribly silly to me, given right, that CoffeeScript yeah. converts into JavaScript. But yeah, that, that's right. You know, it's amazing too. I've been I've been recently reading and sort of diving into um, Self a little bit. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Self, but it's it's a very simple. Simple language that has very simple objects, but it's prototypal like JavaScript is, and so uh, you know, it, JavaScript uh, pulled a lot from self, um, <laughs> and so it's been really cool to see to, to see the relationships between that, and it's, it's been fun. Yeah, that's cool. All right, everyone's favorite JavaScript topic that you may or may not have an opinion about is Turbo Links. Uh, on, off, like it, don't like it. Off, I don't like it. Off. <laughs> now, do you not like it for because it, it screws with? Uh, libraries you use, or some you know more I don't know principled reason, or well, some it's, bad it's experience. mostly about every time I've tried to use it, um, it's it's you know I, I'm a, I'm a I'm a firm believer in when you're in in the idea that when you're programming, you're altering the program in your head and transcribing it into code. Um, and so with Turbo Links, it breaks a lot of my expectations and understanding of that sort of the fidelity of that uh, transcription process, right? If I expect something in my head to behave a certain way um, and it doesn't exactly behave that way in the machine, then I find that very confusing and frustrating. So I, that's one of those gems I immediately disable in Rails. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I, I, so I like this topic. Like, I don't like the flame wars about it, but I, I, um, 
I didn't write, like I said before, I didn't write a lot of JavaScript until not all that long ago. And none of the, the things that I've written have been super heavy in JavaScript either. So yeah. Terminal Links to me is great because that, like you said, that's, that's where I was coming from. So to me, I didn't, ha it's not like competing with some alternate understanding of how things are supposed to work, but I totally get what people don't like about it because people that I think a lot of have strong negative reactions like you just did. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think it's cool. I think it's cool that like, um, different people that I like have such different opinions about that topic. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't really hate it or anything like that. I, you know, I, I certainly understand why, uh, why it would be useful. It's just, it's totally a personal thing for me. I, um, <laughs> like I said, I like to, I like to minimize the number of layers between me and uh, what's in my head. I guess. So yeah, I get that. Um, all right. Speaking of, I, I'm not that interested in general in. Uh, text editors, but what the heck, since we're asking these, I'm going to ask, uh, which text editor yeah. do you use now? So for many years, I used Vim, um, mostly mostly through college. And at my last job, uh, the programmer that sat next to me, awesome guy, he was an Emacs user. And I, of course, knew, knew about Emacs, and I maybe tried it once or twice in college, but um, he was an Emacs user, and we actually made a bet that we would switch editors for a week, and either time any one of us complained... Um, anytime either of us complained, they'd have to pay the other guy five dollars, and that was about two and a half years ago. And I actually have not switched away from Emacs. So I'm hardcore Emacs now. No kidding, that's cool. <laughs> huh. Now, how much did you owe him at the end of that? <laughs> ten bucks, I think. I think it was just ten. Now, did that was like a net ten, or did yeah. he owe you like fifty? So you netted forty. No, he didn't complain at all. He didn't owe me any money. This is a disciplined guy. <laughs> <laughs> so zero ten. Man, you're both disciplined. That's like yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to sit next to uh, someone that didn't complain about anything for a <laughs> well, couple if weeks. If there's a, if there's a, co a financial cost associated with it, I can. Uh, it's, it's easier to be disciplined, I think. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Uh, a totally different topic. State sure. machines. Like them, don't like them. Uh, state machines like DFAs? Yeah, like, like uh, t turn your model in Rails into a state machine to control sort of what states it can get into using you know, active, uh, active model transitions or access state machine or any of the other approaches people ne use. Never, never done it actually. Never done it. Yeah. So I um, think that, I think that's probably, yeah, I mean, it. I think, I think, I think interview, I, I use state machines in, in interviews all the time though. <laughs> I just, I'm not, I guess not familiar, familiar enough with the, the active model transitions to use, use a model as a, as a state machine. That's interesting. <laughs> Do you, uh, yeah, you know, I, I've kind of like gone, the other way. So I've, for a while, liked them, kind of now think that they can maybe cause more harm than good for a lot of the same reasons you articulated. It can, it's like another thing to translate into that sometimes doesn't seem worth it. But Yeah, it's also, you know, readability too counts um, quite a bit. And so it's not always obvious. It depends on s certainly how it's structured. And um, <laughs> anyway, trying to trying to discern what a state diagram does is not always easy. It's sometimes easier just to read, read a method or something like that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I actually think that the, uh, the new enum feature in Rails 4.1 gives me like 70% maybe of, of what I like about implementing a, a state machine in a model. I don't love how it's implemented quite yet, but I, I, that'll get fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you like to pair? Uh, personally, no. Um, I don't. Uh, I, I I don't I don't want to talk too much about block until later, but um, we certainly have opinions about that, especially when it comes to learning. But if I do believe I do believe pairing is extremely effective uh, to to bring maybe someone who's more junior uh, increase their skill a little bit. But um, 
I think I think that's I don't know if that's a personal preference of mine or not. It it that this is one of those other things that, at least, from what I've heard, tends to be very polarizing. Um, but yeah, I I hear you. I so I think it's interesting. I so I have a similar sort of. Um, base opinion about pairing, which is it seems like a good idea, especially to learn, but I don't personally like it. And in general, I don't like things where there's like a big difference between what I think about, you know, would be good for someone else and what I think is good for me. But yeah, um, it is very interesting, especially in a, in a startup like ours, uh, very, very tangibly decreases the amount of stuff that can get done. Um, if, if you have two people working on one project, Versus two people working on two projects, and normally, normally I'm not all about uh, sort of thinking, <laughs> thinking about engineering in that in that fashion. But it, it definitely decreases productivity uh, in the in the in the short term. I think so. Yeah, I, yeah, right. I agree. Um, so related to that, typing skills, uh, scale of one to ten, how how good of a typist are you? Uh, I, good lord, I haven't tested my typing speed in many many years. Uh, I think I'm a pretty good typer. I I can't I can't tell you what I'm typing as I'm typing it unless it's above above the uh, the top letter key. If it's in the numbers, I maybe have to look down. But I don't know. I'm pretty good. I don't think about that too often, though. <laughs> the only time I think about it is if I pair with someone for like a couple minutes, and then either I'm like self conscious about maybe like my my typing isn't as good, or I want to scratch my eyes out because their typing's bad. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, so. We use a product called uh, called um, Screen Hero to to pair remotely. Our mentors and students pair, and one thing that I found w with regard to typing is that crossing a platform, so going from if uh, Screen Hero is a screen sharing software, if you're unfamiliar with it, and it it very it's very good and it, ha it has very good support for sort of passing through all the keystrokes that, that either person makes. And I have <laughs> last night I got tripped up a lot because uh, I was pairing with someone on Windows and navigating web, for example, I, I'm so used to hitting command tab to open a new tab in, in, in my browser that it, it opened his start menu and did all these crazy things and it's kind of like a hiccup, kind of like tripping over your own feet a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I get that. It's, it's, uh, you become very conscious of, of sort of your, your, I don't know, how you use your computer when you're pairing with someone or watching someone pair with you and uh, yeah. it's, it's actually one of the things I don't like about it. Um, yeah. People, people are opinionated about their editors and their keyboard shortcuts that they use and what shell they use and all of this. And it, it's, it's amazing how personalized it becomes after several years. So I agree. I'm, I'm actually like, this is a, sounds like a non-opinion point, but I'm personally not that opinionated about it. And the, what, what ends up frustrating me is when someone else is so opinionated about everything, I'm like, oh, come on. Like, like you know, as if those are the things that are going <laughs> to stop us from writing something good. But then it's, it's sort of, it's sort of I don't know, like a Seinfeld episode to be opinionated about not being opinionated. So, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I, I understand, though. It's <laughs> crazy. All right. So uh, uh, two more of these questions, then let's transition into block because I, I want to hear all about it. Uh, music or no music when you code? Uh, absolute, absolutely music. Um, absolutely. I, uh, I listen to music all day. I used to when I was programming, and uh, I actually prefer classical music. Um, I prefer things without words, so that I don't know why, but it just it feels gets me into the zone, I guess. Yeah, I get that. So, like, my, my preference is one of two things. It's either classical or music I know well. And I think for the same yeah. reason, and that in neither case am I listening to what's being said. Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I, I will actually amend it a little bit. I do, I do enjoy something like um, Andrew Bird, where the the vocals are. Uh, no is the wrong word, maybe, but they they're less. The song and the music is less focused around the vocals, uh, and it's it's more about the vocals being part of the song. I don't know if that makes 
makes any sense or, or no I, I totally get that i mean as long as i don't have to as long as i'm not like hearing what they're saying as sentences that are competing with what i'm saying to myself right it's just other noises in the song <laughs> <laughs> the grunting fine uh, poetry oh, probably man. less fine <laughs> it's a, a mock startup to be made with that yeah right uh, all right conferences uh, as much as you can get uh, only if you have to somewhere in between you know i I typically view conferences as, as recruiting tools. Although I will, I will, I will say that there is one conference I spoke about a little bit earlier, which is a conference at my alma mater, Illinois, uh, that I that I can't speak highly enough of. Um, I, I helped run it one year, and we had some great speakers. And it's, this is not really conferences that most engineers are probably familiar with, but it's a it's a student technology conference. It's, in my opinion, one of the best in the world. So I I, I go back every year for it. That's, oh, that's probably the only regular one I go to. I went to Waza last year, and it was, it was good. Um, it was good, but it was, um, I don't want to say I was disappointed by it, but uh, it, it was <laughs> just, a lot, it, it was a lot more about marketing. Yeah, I guess I did, but I'll go back, though. You know, that's the real question is how, you know, actions, not words, and I will go back, but. Um, right. All right, so, so last of these, uh, what's the dumb thing you do all the time? Like, for, for example, you know, uh, can't remember if it's respond to or responds to or you know uh, uh look up the documentation for i don't know you know some hash method that you've used a thousand times like what's your what's your achilles heel in ruby hmm my achilles real hmm, in ruby or if not ruby programming yeah um hmm think about that a little bit i think it's I definitely look up syntax for things all the time that I shouldn't have to look up. I'm definitely dumb in that way. It's I, Google has become a part of my brain in that sense. But um, hmm, the dumb do thing you, that I do. Do you use Dash for for? You know, I've I, I I've tried it, uh, and it, I have a small I have an 11 inch MacBook Air, and I found it. I got I got uh, download crazy with all the documentation I assumed I would need. I had this scenario in my head that I would need to use Dash when I was with on internet for a week, and that scenario has never happened. So. Uh, I think I just need to make a part of my habit rather than rather than relying on Google. But yeah, I've kind of done it. I, I think because it has Google inside of it, and it's like faster for anything that's part <laughs> of the core uh, documentation. I'm a, I'm a fan. I, I give it a big yeah. plus one. Yeah. Cool. All right. <clears throat> Enough of that. That was fun. Uh, let's <laughs> talk about Block. So you've given sort of snippets about what Block's mission is, but give us the long version. Sure. Um, so block, Block's mission, we, we've discovered something interesting. We've discovered that you know, when, when traditional education or the traditional classroom was, was sort of created in the 1800s, I, I suppose, it, at the time, the most effective way to disseminate information was having a lecturer uh, lecture to 30 students or 300 students in the case of a university. Um, and that is no longer true. Um, what is true is the internet makes that at totally 100% obsolete. Sorry, I've got a siren here. <laughs> oh, that's um, fine. Well, while we're... Okay, let's interrupt this thought then while you're being interrupted. So where are you physically right now so we can imagine what kind of emergency is happening around you? <laughs> sure. I'm, uh, I'm on the top floor of a building in San Francisco, downtown San Francisco. Actually, we just moved into this office uh, in November. Um, so still getting adjusted, but it's, it's downtown, so some police car just drove by. Uh, okay, so let me continue. Um... What we found is that the apprenticeship model is very effective uh, for learning technical skills, and it works really well online. Um, and it's 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 kind of crazy we're rediscovering some of this stuff that, that dates back hundreds of years. Really, is what, what does the word apprenticeship mean? You know, when I say the word apprenticeship, it has all this baggage in your mind. Like when you think of an apprentice, you think of maybe a carpenter. 
or a blacksmith or a plumber maybe or something like that where it's, it's sort of a trade uh, rather than going off to be educated at a university. Um, and what we see now is that certainly I, I went to a great college, right? And I'm glad that I went to my college and I think it was, it's been immensely valuable to me. Um, and I don't regret it one bit, but there are a lot of people who um, are not as lucky as I am. And so they maybe didn't go to college or maybe they went to a, a college but majored in something that they've, they've had trouble getting a job after college, right? There's something like... 44% of college graduates, at least in the United States, are unemployed or underemployed is the other sort of word that we use. Uh, and so to me, that means there's a very clear problem. Um, and so what, what, what we're doing at Block is trying to fill that gap, basically, is trying to fill this tech boom. You can't walk 10 feet, at least in San Francisco and increasingly across the country, without running into a company that needs to hire software engineers, right, and web developers specifically. Um, so we're trying to fill that gap. You know, people, people everywhere see that gap. Uh, and our typical customer, student, really is someone who is near software all day. They they work with engineers. Maybe they have a sibling or a cousin or a friend or a colleague. Or you can't even really use the word near tech anymore because that doesn't mean anything. It's just everywhere. Software is everywhere. So. Right. So so let's talk a lot about the whole the whole remote versus in person education because there are a bunch of you know similar companies in one way or another that are that are you know boot camps that are in person where you go and immerse yourself in that and then there's you that's remote and uh you know there's a huge difference there so what are what are you know what's your perspective on the pluses and minuses sure that's a fantastic question um certainly certainly the you could you could call it online education or people trying to change education or these skills training it's very very noisy right now there are a lot of people including ourselves trying to make a dent in this thing um, the biggest the biggest difference is about fit you know f- for example we recommend many of the boot camps we think they're fantastic we have relationships with them um, we, we we like those people uh, but the reality is that most people can't quit their jobs and they can't relocate to a major metropolitan area like San Francisco or Chicago or you know New York. Um, for three months at a time or for two months at a time just to transition their skills, right? That, that's just infeasible for most people. Um, so that, that's, like, that's like the biggest difference, right? There are cost differences. There's differences in maybe some of the skills that you learn. Um, the outcome that you seek is mostly the same. You, you want a career change. Maybe you want a new job or maybe you want uh, to become a freelancer or an entrepreneur um, or maybe you just want to you know, communicate with your, with your, co- your technical colleagues uh, 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 better. So... Um, the difference is, though, you know, we do view one of our biggest challenges is making it, f- making, making the remoteness f- not feel remote, right? And the speed of, you know, bandwidth is crazy now, so that's not really a problem. And so we have video chat, and we have screen sharing options, and that's actually that's actually coming along very good. I have like a litmus test that I use, which is when two people who have never met in the real world before, but they've met online, which is our students and mentors. And I guess, by the way, I should talk a little bit about how Block works, but. Um, I consider us successful because when these people meet for the first time in your life, they don't feel like they're meeting for the first time in your life. They feel like, oh, there's Mike, or, you know, it's good to see you, Sasha. Um, yeah, <laughs> instead sure. of shaking hands and saying it's nice to meet you. Um, and so that, that personal one-on-one interaction is probably the, the, other, the other difference, I would say, to most hmm. other uh, approaches to, to, to online learning and certainly remote learning is, um, you know, when you, when you are a student at Block, what you're getting is personal one-on-one attention for many, many weeks for many hours per week uh, from an experienced practitioner of, of web development. And that, that turns out to be the biggest thing that matters when it comes to, to learning. So, All right, so I've got, I've got a couple follow-ups there. But why don't we take a step back? Uh, you were, I, I should have asked you this question, and, and you were smart to bring it up. So give us the mechanics about how Block works from both the perspective of the student and the, the mentor. 
Sure. No. So uh, we 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 have a very high bar for our mentors. First of all, we have a, a worldwide network of mentors, um, and you know we cover all time zones from California to uh, to I believe India right now. And what you pay for is time with your mentor. There are weekly check-ins, but you progress through a curriculum, much like you'd have a curriculum elsewhere. Um, it starts right now. It starts with programming and ends with what we call a capstone project, and there's all sorts of stuff in between, including. In different projects and different gems and different you know, how do you do that? user authentication or uh, etc. And so you build these projects and you check in with your mentor at least three times a week. That's required. Uh, that 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 actually means for most people that they have to commit roughly 25 hours per week to this, which is not a small commitment. No, <laughs> I'd say uh, right. And so, but you know, we 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 sort of there's this contract this implicit contract that if you trust us we'll get you there and what, what we like to say is the block is about the outcome we're, we're not a content company we're an outcome company right we want to see our alumni successful that's that's why we come to work right um and so you have these three weekly check-ins uh with your mentor and they code code review you know what you, you've submitted they make they answer questions they do instruction they we, we don't we don't try to limit or you know constrain or put too much structure into the relationship between student and mentor because everybody's different Everybody learns differently. Some people are visual people. Some people aren't. Um, you know, everybody has a has a very unique learning style, and our mentors understand that uh, quite quite well. So um, that's, I guess, maybe a ten thousand foot view. And again, the last thing would be that the cat the capstone project is is in many ways uh, a very visual representation of what you've learned in twelve weeks, right? And uh, so, so that's many the students come in. That's the total length of time is twelve weeks. Twelve weeks, yes. Twelve weeks. Okay, and give us an uh, idea beyond, of. Actually, how much, you know, what is a successful, but I'm going to say average successful student, you know, what could they do at the beginning of the 12 weeks and what could they do at the end of the 12 weeks? Sure. Um, most students come in with no programming experience. We do have, we have, we have people who are coming in to refresh their skills, but for the most part, uh, it's, it's starting from zero. Um, and then as for outcomes, they're quite varied. And, and one thing we're starting to, f to hone in on a little bit and focus on is, is the entrepreneur. Um, you know, so that's one thing the boot camps do is the opposite of that. They they focus quite a bit on getting you a job. Um, and I would say that you know the, the skills that we merge, the hard technical skills, are roughly equivalent. Um, you know, you you be able to build web apps. You're a junior web developer, and you have a an understanding uh, enough of an understanding um, on on how to learn. You know, one thing that most people probably don't realize if you're not a programmer is that programming is learning. You know, it. Every time you look up syntax for a new function, or every time you look up documentation for something you've never done before, you're you're actively learning, which is which is very different than other other professions, right? So that's that's possibly the biggest takeaway. But the typical outcome for a student is they go off and they turn their thing into a into a product and uh, get a contract, maybe as a freelancer, as they work on uh, continue to work on their startup or their product they're trying to launch. Um, you know, many of our students emerge and immediately become freelancers, on um, you know immediately block pays for itself within maybe a month or two. Uh, yeah, which is very exciting for us. I sort of, I, I always find this topic interesting, where the 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 focus does become pretty heavily about the job. And when I talk to people that have gone through other programs, and I kind of get that, right? Because it's expensive to go through one of these programs, or it's not free. Put it that way. Um, yeah, but it, but it's also a little. It makes it it makes conversations with the as an outsider with the either the the uh, education company um, or the student a little bit hard because it, it seems so focused on getting the job that it it's hard to be as real as maybe I'd like someone to be about how hard it is to really get up and running programs. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, what, what's, what's interesting to us is 
uh, to my knowledge, we're the only ones who do this. Uh, I'm going to give you credit. I, I, I don't know. Ones. I, I, I don't believe anybody has this perspective on it, or at least they don't appear to. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a feedback effect. If the whole outcome is to get a job, then there are all sorts of other things that you might need uh, to, to work well in, for example, a small web development shop. Um, or even even a small startup or, or a large web you know a large company of some kind and, and some boot camp you know boot camps and and other programs focus quite a bit on those skills right and to be honest most of the students we see come in with those skills already um, what they really really want to do is cut their teeth on hard technical stuff they want to build stuff they, they want these hard technical skills and we found <laughs> my business partner we we use this ex this quote a lot and it's kind of kind of a weird thing to use when you're talking about a startup. But we have, there's a quote from, I think, Batman Begins. Where he falls into the water, uh, Bruce Wayne falls into the water, and uh, when he comes out, the guy says to him, you know, rub your chest and your arms will take care of themselves. That's, that's very much our philosophy, is that if we get our students to a high level of competency, the rest will sort of take care of itself, right? Um, anyway, we have an application process as well. We, we do some screening as well, like, like every program does. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's, it's a fair thing. Uh, we found that just focusing on skills so far has had the best outcome for us so I think that's good I think I think it's still I think this this need for the job at the end can make conversations as an outsider kind of hard because they're, they're they're like interviews right like or someone's putting on a, a right. bit of a show but anything that makes it more about the skills I think is is good there's also there's there's also a level of transparency I, I think that's important here um, we go to a boot camp or any other program that is all about getting a job you don't really know what the job is when you enter you don't really know what it is you're going to get you don't know right. what to expect you know are you going to work at uh, a small startup or are you going to work at um i don't want to name, name company names but um a lot of people are sold on this this sort of dream startup silicon valley um you know work at a startup be a, be a programmer and i think they're i think they're a little disappointed sometimes by the outcome they, they maybe don't get the, they, they certainly get a job and those boot camps can say they have a such and such placement rate and they have an average salary of X or Y and that's great but you know I think I think sometimes students can feel left behind by that a little bit yeah I get that so back, back to the remote topic um, so sure. to kind of repeat your perspective it sounds like you think that that a remote process is is more pragmatic as much as anything else than than an in-person process do, do you, is that said right or do you think that that's captured wrong um i don't know i think yeah I, it can be it certainly can be i think i think when it comes to organizations i i haven't worked really in an organization that has a lot of uh, remote people we do have a couple here at block but they're not programmers um and so i do think there is immense value within a, an organization of maybe a certain size there is immense value to sort of being around for the organic conversations that happen uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, it's, it's quite a burden on some of this. There's a lot of work involved in keeping remote people feeling like they're part of the organization. And if that's the kind of organization you like to build, then that's great. And we, we do believe very much that remote, remote work is possible. Our whole product is remote. Um, but but our, 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 thought, our thought process has nothing to do with whether or not you can work remotely, and it's more about whether or not you can learn remotely. Um, yeah, so right. there's certainly a lot of overlap there, but that's, that's the lens we've Yes. So when I say pragmatic, I mean, you know, someone, most people don't have the funding to go, go, like you said, off to a big city for four months and without a Absolutely. job and figure it out. And, and your program's designed so they can do it concurrent with their the rest of their life, right? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the, the flip side of this is there are a lot of really good web developers around the world who make excellent mentors, and they love mentoring, they love teaching, and they're not going to move to San Francisco either. Now, certainly San Francisco and, and, and New York, these places have good developers that could be mentors, but there's nothing like the untapped potential of the entire world of really good programmers, right? There's someone in Milwaukee or someone in Detroit or... St. Louis, or these cities that big boot camps are never going to set up a shop in, um, we're able to provide for them, basically. So. Right. Yeah, and so I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it seems to me like that's a huge benefit of your model, is that, you know, instead of just having the pool of potential mentors that are in the, the city that the boot camp or educational company is in, that, that you have a, a much broader pool. And, and, and beyond that also, that it's not just full-time people, but I, I assume your apprentices, uh, or I'm sorry, your mentors are, are also part-time, right? Right. And some, in many cases, they're full-time web developers, and they, they do this on the side because they like it, and they can yeah. make some extra money doing it. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's, <laughs> I'm surprised nobody else is doing it. <laughs> so talk more about that. So I, I've, um, I've had a lot of conversations with, with people that are um, mentors in boot camps, um, and mm -hmm. it seems like there's a huge difference between the experience you'd get as a student from interacting with someone whose full-time job is to be a mentor in a boot camp and the experience you'd get interacting with someone who this is like the frosting on the cake of their technical life. Um, <laughs> do you think that it turns out that way? Have you received feedback about that difference or, you know, who knows? Um, well, first I'll, first I'll say that when, you know, we, we care very much about getting feedback from our students at every step in the process in, in order to both improve our improve our product and make sure nobody's falling through the cracks and by and large we've had to we've had to start filtering out feedback about the mentor um, because when people emerge they 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 all always rave about how great their mentor is even if in our opinion they're not a great mentor because <laughs> they don't know uh, so better because <laughs> they don't want well, to you know, defend someone uh, we have a high bar for mentors and we care about having good mentors very much and so we really want to make sure we we uh, keep keep the bar high and it's it's, that's been one of the challenges is every student loves their mentor so much and I think it has to do has to do with the, the sort of vulnerable feeling you get when you're learning right if you are stuck and you, you are willing to ask a stupid question and appear uh, maybe in your head or if you're at all insecure like most, most people are myself included uh, you don't want to ask stupid questions or, or appear to be dumb uh, so that, that state that state leaves the, the relationship in a very good place actually because the mentor is helping and the student is learning and whether or not it's their full-time job and how much energy they're moving to, it doesn't matter. I mean, it certainly matters to us and it matters to the students sort of at a high level, but in those, in those interactions themselves, uh, maybe it's just because we're early enough we haven't had a problem with it, but um, I'm, I've been incredibly happy with it so far. So if you were to think back two years and, and mm -hmm. what you imagined would make a good mentor and then what actually makes a good mentor from your perspective having watched more of it now like what are the big what are the big differences and what, what do you think you got right hmm. well there's something to be said for certainly empathy right it, by the way programming and mentoring are very different skills um as right. may or may not be obvious right what makes a good mentor i think it's someone who is empathetic right they, they know, they understand, and maybe they were in your shoes not too long ago, or at least they can remember what it was like to not know how to code. Um, or not, or, you know, uh, remember what it was like to not have a certain skill, you know, a certain thing or whatever. Um, and empathy and communication skills, those are really the two big ones. And then certainly experience, right? And a number of years as a web developer is very important, right? And we 
actually, I, I, my personal opinion is that our mentors uh, have to pass a higher bar than regular web developers do at a typical job because they have to be good developers, but they also have to have this, this host of other skills that is, that is very rare. And I think this is one, one way that uh, having it be such a remote distributed kind of thing is really advantageous. It seems like those two things you said sort of compete too, right? Like the, it's easier to empathize when you're closer and experienced to the, I would think at least, to the person that you're mentoring. And then the more experience you have, the further you are from being in the state that they're in. But that may, may be certainly. Sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, the other thing that's interesting too is um, when you have a very opinionated mentor, someone who really uh, has a very strong opinion about either tools or, or you know, typical way of going about solving problems or whatever, there's there's this, the best mentors are people who understand the meta lessons. The meta lessons are, why is this person opinionated? How do they form their opinions? Um, are they okay with being wrong? Um, how to learn, really. You know, learn, how to learn is, is what we're actually all about. Um, and so, uh, mentors who understand that and who maybe been burned in the past by their own ego, right? I can recall close examples of thinking I was really a good programmer screwing with production data or something of that nature and they're really biting me hard and those those kind of lessons right those are what makes us developers and uh, that's uh, it's something that's um, it's much easier to convey when you have really experienced mentors now can you remember what it's like to not be able to program yourself you know one uh, one thing we did when we started Block, we actually didn't hire mentors first we were our own mentors we had uh, the first couple classes we ran the first couple cohorts were um, were taught by us, and it was I, it was challenging for me personally. I, I I think it's because I've been programming for so long. But I would I would be on a Skype call with someone, and they would I would say, okay, open your terminal and do Git checkout, and I'd realize immediately they didn't know, didn't know what Git was, they didn't know what a terminal was, and so I had to say, whoa, okay, let's back up. And I had this constant discovery process of sort of relearning what I had learned before, but trying to do it through that as of this new person. It was very, very challenging. Um, I'm not sure that I'd make a good mentor. <laughs> yeah, I can, I, I get that. So I, I hadn't mentioned this before, but I didn't learn to program until I was five or six years older than you are now, I think. Okay. Five years, maybe. Um, and I had had a, a good career, and you know, I suppose I was technical and a good analyst, but I wasn't a programmer. And How did you learn? Um, you know, I was a, I picked up a book and programmed. You know, like I was a, I'm going to get through it, come hell or high water kind of guy. Uh, right. So I wrote a lot. And, you know, I wrote a lot of terrible, terrible code to begin with. Um, but, but I don't know. I think, like, a couple interesting observations thinking back are that some of the worst code has been, is still in use and does some very yeah. important things that, that, and doesn't, doesn't break. Um, like, I think that that's, I think about this topic a lot where, you know, we're all focused on writing code that isn't brittle, right? That can be changed over time and that can adapt to changes. But a lot of the code I've written hasn't needed to change. And yeah. and then I look back and say, well, I was a terrible programmer when I wrote that. And the code is just god-awful and I didn't know how to test anything. And it's just terrible. But... I don't know. It, it's done the job pretty well. And then sometimes I look at stuff I've written more recently where you can end up, you know, getting into some architecture, uh, scra you know, uh, scrambles and, and, you know, maybe be less productive than I was when I was super naive. So I think about this topic a lot. Like, how do you, how do you strike the balance between being a, a good programmer and writing good code that's maintainable, which, you know, I think I can do better now, and not being afraid to like 
stretch yourself and go to places that are hard to test with a thousand little perfect unit tests right out of the gate. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I, I totally agree with you. I think one of the, the coolest things to watch for me is to, to, to see our students sort of emerge and they, all the, most of the stuff you just said it has very close to philosophical questions you're asking at least. It's, it's about how comfortable am I and how do I feel about the work I've done and this and that and that's something that most people don't realize when they come into block. They don't realize that this is going to be a journey of like self-improvement and self-discovery and you're going to really understand how you think and where your values lie and things like that and it's not really obvious that that's what programming is about. <laughs> um, yeah. And it can be really cool to look back on the code you've written in the past and uh, try to discern these things. So. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think that there have been many experiences in my life that were, I'd say, parenting and being her <laughs> husband would be the other two obvious ones. But you know, where you really, you really have to ask some tough questions of yourself. You know, about how important yeah, is yeah. it to be yeah. smart versus productive? You know, how uncomfortable does it make you feel when what you do? Um, isn't as good as maybe uh, someone else's equivalent effort would be, you know, uh, etc. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, so yeah. how, do you, how do you help people through that? Is that the, the job <laughs> of the mentor? Is it just, you know, the experience sort of does that for you anyhow? Um, yeah, well, we, we definitely view it as the job of the mentor, right? And we, we, again, we, we consider our focus and our obsession is to make sure the relationship between student and mentor is a healthy one, a productive one, um, that it's custom-tailored to the student's particular learning style. Um, yeah. We're very flexible about allowing people to switch mentors if it's not a good fit. Uh, um. Um, all right, so we're uh, we're sort of near the end of our our hour. I think we've gotten like a pretty cool idea of what Block's about. Tell us about the next two years for Block for remote learners for remote mentors. What's what's coming? Yeah. Um, so within the next couple of years, uh, our goal is to become the place you go for technical skills when you want. I mean, you know, we, we realize that careers are. are created and destroyed now nowadays within the span of a few years right so like I said earlier programming is learning and uh, in two years there'll be a totally new web framework that everyone's using or maybe everything will be on mobile or, or this or that right and we want to be the place where you go uh, to, to update your skills refresh your skills um, in many cases just to get help when you're stuck not necessarily during your learning process but if programming is a, is a life as a lifestyle is something that is equivalent to learning as a lifestyle, then you're going to have to have a place where you go to continue learning. Um, so that's what we want to be. That's, that's very vague. Um, the, other, the other big thing is this model we've created very obviously uh, doesn't have to be focused around technical skills. And certainly that's our plan for the time being, but there are other things besides web development you might imagine um, within the technical realm uh, you could apply this to. So that's another one of our big bets. Cool. Well, hey, let's end the conversation talking about Rails, um, given sure. that that's the topic of the, the podcast. And, <laughs> and the reason I like to end with it is um, it's pretty simple in that you know, we're all part of the Rails community. We all get so much from Rails, and you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of giving back in, in every way that's practical to the Rails community. So let's, let's give back for a few minutes and talk about mm -hmm. Rails. So um, Let's start with the easiest one, which is what's your favorite thing about where Rails is right now as a as a platform? Hmm. Uh, um, I think having worked with other web frameworks in the past, I think my favorite part of Rails is the fact that you can prototype things so quickly and have your prototype become something real uh, and have it be maintainable as a real product uh, rather, than, rather than maybe other web frameworks. Right? So I, I've worked in the past with, with products that were clearly prototypes that became a product with no thought and so the architecture was just destroyed right. <laughs> or 
non-existent um, sort of collapse under its own weight. So I, I think that's probably my favorite part of Rails, and I, I don't know if that's a new development of Rails or not, but... Uh, it's sort of always been that way, I think, but I'm with you that it's a great thing about about Rails. Um, what about the what about the if you were the king of Rails, <laughs> if there is yeah. one, there, there may be one, but if you were it, uh, what um, what what would you be thinking about for the next two to three years for Rails? So there are areas where um, you'd like to see development and improvement, or uh, less well, focus on, or what? So certainly. Um, Certainly, a lot of a lot of user interaction, a lot of product design is moving to mobile. That's no surprise to anyone. Um, I don't know exactly what I would expect Rails to do for me in that scenario, but um, I believe that a lot of a lot of the way you write good developer tools is getting the defaults right. And I think I th it's telling to me at least that the, most of the time when I start a new project, I get rid of I change all the defaults. So I think choosing better defaults could be a big a big uh, a big thing. That's what I would do if I were king. <laughs> but, but it would be very polarizing. So uh, I don't know that I'd like to do that. But uh, yeah, I don't know if it's hard to be king or easy to be king. Probably a little bit of both. But it's hard to make yeah. everyone happy. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, give me the uh, the person in the Ruby or Rails community, whether they're a, a known person or not, that's made the the biggest impact on you, and, and whether you know them or not personally. I think that uh, that's uh, mm -hmm. that doesn't matter much either. Yeah, so I'm going to immediately jump to Ryan Bates. We love Ryan Bates. We actually have a, a, a project for us that we, he has this thing called Ruby Warrior, which is great for beginners, great for people learning Ruby specifically, but um, Rails is an amazing resource. It's, it, especially, especially as a, from an online education perspective, it's, it's this thing we can only hope to uh, <laughs> strive towards. It's this, it's this repository of content for beginners that is well-written and well-organized. Um, it's, I can't tell you how many times I go to RailsCast on a daily basis. Yeah. I don't even code. So, um. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So I, 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 uh, for a separate reason, I, I looked on Twitter the other day, maybe about a week ago, to see, um, to see if Ryan had sort of said anything on Twitter recently because and, and, he hasn't he's sort of taken he's some still, time off. Yeah. And uh, so at least three people every day, even still, and I think he took, I think he started his time off, I don't know, six or eight months ago. Three people every day just say into the ether, um, you know, thanks, Ryan Bates, for what you do. Man, I don't know. I don't know how many people have that experience where they've impacted a community that much where three random people would just talk to themselves and say, you know, hey, Ryan, thanks I for agree. what you do. I agree. And I, 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 on a separate level, on a personal level, I don't know how he was so productive. <laughs> They are just cranking out all this stuff for the betterment of the community, really. Yeah, two per great. week for all those years. Yeah. Really, really something it's else. Impressive. Yeah. All right, well, tell us, uh, tell us more about where we can connect with you, where we can connect with Block, anything else you want to plug as we wrap it up. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, if you have any questions, I'm, my email is available to you, Dave at Block.io. That's B-L-O-C dot I-O. Um, and that's our website, so... Twitter? You a fan of Twitter? Sorry, yeah, Twitter. Uh, DPAOLA2. D-P-A-O-L-A-2. Um, that's my personal Twitter. Um, yeah, I... Yeah, I, I don't know what else to say, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Dave, I, it was uh, it was awesome to talk to you. Uh, it was fun to hear about, I don't know, you know, your journey to Block. Block's a cool company that sounds like it's got a lot going for it, and I uh, hope to uh, connect sometime soon. That's a pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. 
I asked Block if they'd be willing to give listeners a discount, and they said yes. So if you decide to enroll at Block, you can use the code RAILS to save yourself 100 bucks. Also, please check out workonrails.com. The code RELAUNCH will allow you to post a job for free while supplies last. I'm your host, Sean Devine, and I'm barely known on Twitter.